Welcome to our ongoing series sponsored by Catholic Church Reform International. I'm your moderator, Rini Reed. Our guest today is Massimo Fagioli, a professor of theology and religious studies at Villanova University. In his most recent book is Catholicism and Citizenship, Political Cultures of the Church in the 21st Century. He's a contributing writer to several magazines, including Commonweal, America Magazine, National Catholic Reporter. Massimo, so much of your writings address the politics within the church today. And you continually talk about how the laity needs to reclaim our rightful place in the church. And to me, it's even clear this is what Pope Francis wants when he describes the church that he envisions as a kind of upside down pyramid with the people at the top and their voices guiding the church, the bishops listening to them and acting as their servants, and then the, peop the Pope at the very bottom blessing the very reasonable request that the bishops bring to him on behalf of the people. But I have some reservation that this is ever gonna happen like this in my lifetime. It just feels to me like we're at a standstill on this happening. But how do you suggest that we break down the barriers? I think that the barriers still exist, but they need to fall, especially at the local level, in our local churches, in our parishes, in, 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 in our diocese. Because what we see now, it's an interesting uh, paradox, because we have a Pope, uh, Francis, who has talked like no other Pope before, in terms of a synodal church, of synodality, a church that cannot be clerical. So that is happening. Uh, so this progress he, is happening at the central level in the Vatican. We have seen, for, for example, the synods of bishops in, in the last few years after Francis, 2014, 2015, 2018, and most probably the synod that starts in... Uh, in 10 days, uh, that there has been more participation of lay people and, and of women, not really, not yet with a vote, but their voice has mattered much more than before. That's not happening usually at the local level. So the responsibility of the local leaders of the Catholic Church, especially bishops and parish priests, is to be faithful to what Francis has encouraged the whole church to do, which is to open space for synodality, which is not church democracy, but it's the idea that there are some issues and some moments where in the Catholic Church, decisions have to, to be made after a, co a communal synodal process of discernment, of understanding, of opening to questions, to, to different experiences. So there is the, the reluctance at the local level, uh, I would say pretty much everywhere. So we have had just a few exceptions in the Catholic Church in the last few years with local synods or local councils. So, but there are some changes happening. So for example, the uh, the preparations for the plenary council for the church in Australia, which will be celebrated between 2020 and 2021, uh, it's very important 
what's happening in Germany, the synodal path or synodal process, uh, it is very important. So I think that there may be something like a, a trickle down of the synodality from the Vatican to some local churches. Now, the Catholic Church in the United States is the most reluctant of all for many reasons, most of all because it, it, it tends to be a very clerical church. The power of the clergy is, is much bigger, much more visible in the United States than in, in most other churches. So I think we tend to be more pessimistic in the United States because of the situation of a local church. I wouldn't uh, generalize that for the, for the entire Catholic Church today. At the first time that I heard that part of the decentralization of the church in France's mind was to give more authority to the worldwide bishops' conferences, I personally thought that isn't going to help us in the United States. Our bishops here are just too closed, too conservative, and too many of them just anti-Francis. Well, that's true. On the other hand, uh, in these last six and a half years, Francis has appointed uh, many hundreds of bishops. And so that has changed already the landscape. Uh, and I think we will see that in the Synod for the Amazon region that opens uh, in uh, 10 days, more or less. So there have been signals of some movements. Now, again, the US is a particularly difficult uh, case because it's a very big church, a very big country, a very big bishop conference, and it is very much split. So I think uh, there is a real split among the US bishops, um, and this church is in some sense paralyzed because there's no credible leadership coming from the bishop conference. I mean, some local bishops are credible, are respected, but some others uh, really suffer from a collapse in their credibility. So uh, our problem in the United States is very particular, uh, but there are many things that in the church can happen without waiting for the approval or the permission of the bishops to do. So this is also a challenge to us to, to do things that don't require a previous uh, green light. That's, it tends to be also a little bit our problem that we want to be sanctioned and to be officially given permission. Well, in some cases, that's not necessary, and also in some cases, that will never happen. So we need to to act uh, where we we can, uh, because uh, there is a, a vacuum in the church uh, today that needs to be filled, and lay Catholics can do that uh, without waiting too much. I think you may be right about this forthcoming Amazonian conference. I was at a conference in Sao Paulo, Brazil recently, and someone who is very involved with this conference spoke to us and said that he felt strongly that this conference may have 
far more effect on the universal church and the worldwide church than just Amazon and its area. Um, some issues are going to be brought up that are crucial to those of us in the reform movement, and he does feel that it's going to have an impact. Do you share that? I think that's true. Uh, so we will see uh, what will happen, but uh, the, the, the preparations of this synod have been very interesting. Uh, it's a very particular situation in that region of the world, and it could establish the principle that there need to be a significant uh, adaptation of some uh, of some legal uh, procedures of some ways of doing things in the Catholic Church that need to serve the community, and they don't need necessarily to stick to an idealized model of the priesthood or the parish. So that could really be the case is that this synod <clears throat> could change uh, many things first for that local church and then be expanded because there are the churches that are in similar situations, even if not exactly the same. <clears throat> well, maybe one area where the people would have a, an open door opportunity to get more involved is with the election of bishops. I understand it's only been in the last couple of centuries that the people haven't had a say uh, in this. But is it reasonable to think that when a bishop is about to retire, or maybe he's been defrocked, um, that the people of that diocese could actually assume responsibility and start making recommendations of the person that they would like to be their bishop? Is that reasonable? Could it happen? That's reasonable, yes, uh, as long as we don't dream of that, of that procedure becoming a, an election, because that really has never happened in the sense of a democratic election. So what happened, especially in the first millennium, was that local churches were responsible to have a role in accepting or rejecting a local bishop. Uh, so that needs to come back to our experience because I mean, so far has been a process largely of cooptation. So bishops recruit other priests that they consider are suitable to join that club. So, that's, so that needs to change. But here, the problem is that we should be very clear that we need a role for lay Catholics today in this matter that is totally new, that has never been there before. Why? Because before, the power of the lay people in having a say in the bishop of appointment uh, was not the ordinary lay people. It was largely the, the aristocracy or the ruling elites. Um, it was never democratic, really. And so that, so we need to, uh, to understand how to recover some of the old traditions, but in a, in a completely different uh, picture of what uh, lay people are today. 
So that is a trick. And, but again, this, this discussion on how to change the bishop appointment, it's, it's new in some sense, but it's also very old because there has always been an, a reluctance of local churches to accept without discussion what, what was coming from Rome. And in the last two, two centuries, you are right, the whole process has been even more centralized. Now it is showing some uh, big faults because this is a much bigger church. And so the centralization works until the institution becomes too big. And now I think it's too big to, uh, to imagine that in Rome, every step of the process can be assessed uh, far away from the local situation. So here we need to be creative, I think, and understand how the, the current procedure can be updated. Well, we can't do this interview without bringing up the clerical sex abuse crisis. And uh, while this has been going on most of this century, it seems to have climaxed uh, in the last year with the discovery of the direct involvement of bishops and cardinals actually guilty of cover-ups and of sex abuse themselves. Cardinal McCarrick and Cardinal Powell as two examples. You say that all of this speaks to a vertical collapse of the hierarchical authority of the institutional church in some ways, this sounds hopeful to me, but what do you mean by vertical collapse? Well, it's a, so first of all, the phenomenon of the sexual abuse in the church or, or churches has always existed. So, the, so we know more now. It's not that they have happened more often. This is what, what most experts think. So now we know more, they're more visible, those stories are more widely shared and that is more appalling for our understanding of the human person. So it's not that they're more frequent, we are more frequently exposed to those stories. Now that has created a crisis of authority because uh, one assumption from the church in, in the last century or so was that we had gone through some reforms and the problem of abuse, abuse of power or corruption in the church had been solved. And so we had other problems, but not the problem of the corruption and of the systematic cover-up. And so we were wrong because the, the, the corruption was still there. It, it, it hadn't been eradicated with the counter-reformation. So now the new situation is that at Vatican II, those big reforms of the Second Vatican Council were progressive in the sense of giving more power to the bishops. And so that was progress in the 60s. Now that progress looks to us not very progressive because we see that the bishops have, not all of them, but I mean, many of them have failed 
in tackling that abuse, talking about that honestly. So now we have to cope with, with this discovery that those who in the 60s were thought to be the solution to the problem of a monarchical church, now they are the problem. And so, so what do we do with that? That is a big surprise because until the 80s, 90s, the idea was the big problem is a monarchical papacy. With more Episcopal collegiality, we can make this church less monarchical. The sex abuse crisis has been important also to understand the shortcomings of that ecclesiology because it was an ecclesiology that was elitist in, in, in the sense of counting on the Episcopal elite. So now we have to, and there are no preset uh, recipes to fix this because Vatican II has made all the important changes, giving more power again to the bishops and taking away something from the papacy. At Vatican II, very little was done to give more authority to lay people. So they have more responsibility in, the, in uh, evangelization, mission, but Vatican II never talked about the power of the laity to keep the bishop accountable. So we have to deal with that uh, with a theology of the church that uh, can rebalance uh, that episcopal monarchical imbalance that has been typical of these last few centuries. Well, one of the solutions that you've written about is the fact that we have a worldwide conferences of Catholic bishops, but we don't have any corresponding conferences of Catholic laity. And you seem to think that it's well beyond time that we, the people, insist that we be given an opportunity for interaction and deliberation that belong to the whole church, not just to the clergy. But Massimo, we've written countless letters to bishops. We've asked to be involved. We've tried to interact with them. We've tried to communicate. But most of them aren't listening, and a very few will give us a token response how do you bring this about? How do you make it happen? Well, uh, if I knew that, uh, <laughs> it would be much easier. But so, again, the United States is a very difficult situation because uh, I wish we could build a national committee of lay, lay Catholics. Um, a national organization of the lay people. What I, so what would happen most probably in this country is that it would, it would never uh, take off because you would have immediately a conference of, uh, lay, of progressive lay Catholics and a separate conference for conservative lay Catholics because this is, has happened also among theologians. It has happened also among religious orders or priests. So, but in other countries where the Catholic Church is less divided, there are experiences of national bodies that 
uh, that represent the, the lay people of the Catholic Church in one particular country. Now, in some countries that is happening. So again, in, in Germany that's happening, in Australia, in some sense that's happening. In the United States, this is a very divided church, extremely divided church. So I don't envision in the next few years a national organization of lay Catholics that can bring the voice, one voice of lay Catholics. What should happen in, in this country is that in some dioceses, there is the opening of synods or synodal processes uh, that can rebuild a sense of unity, which is now totally lacking. So here, I believe, I understand the sense of urgency and of impatience to, to change things because, I mean, some things haven't changed for a long time. But on the other hand, I'm, I'm very conscious that this church in the U.S. has the first problem, I, I think, is to rebuild some sense of, of unity, which is now lacking among the lady, as it is lacking among the bishops, among the theologians. It's very, very common. So that is something that you you don't build with a law or with a, with a administrative provision it has to 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 be part of a long path and that takes time and my hope is that the new generation of uh, bishops that have been appointed by francis in these last few years can do that because the old generation uh, has not done that well, this rift that you refer to between the conservatives in the United States and the progressives, and it's true, I think, that our country is by far the leader in this kind of uh, difference of, of, of theology and how we live it. And I think uh, Archbishop Vagano's letter, which came out over a year ago now, fueled the fire even more because more than a couple of dozen bishops stood by Vicano attesting to his credibility and did not stand with Francis. So do you think if there's anywhere in global Catholicism where an actual split or schism could happen, do you think it could happen here? Well, I, I, so I think it's unlikely to happen in the way previous schisms have happened. So I don't imagine here happening what happened in um, in the 15th century with, with an anti-pope or something like that, or not even the schism after Vatican II of uh, the Lefebvreite, the SSPX, with a separate jurisdiction, separate. So I don't think that will happen because the, the Catholic Church in this country, in the US, uh, is, is in charge of too many things, schools, universities, hospitals. Uh, it's very hard to break away from the institutional church that big, that rich, that 
as, as it is in the US. I'm very concerned that we could become used to a situation of split within the church that's not natural, that is bad. So that is, is my concern, not of a formal schism with an anti-pope, but of a situation where we, we tend to live our lives as, as Catholics uh, in, in a way that in our entire life is totally separated from, from Catholics that are ideologically on the opposite side of the spectrum. So this is what we have become. That's my concern with the schism. Uh, and there are some bishops that uh, jumped on uh, Vigano's letter because they were so shocked with what Francis uh, is doing that they thought uh, it was a good opportunity to push Francis out of office. Um, so that incident revealed, uh, I mean, how some bishops have become part of this utterly divided church. That's, that's what I mean by schism. Undeclared, uh, uh, it's, it's it is like a, a disease that you 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 can keep in your body with with, with some kind of, of of drugs, but that's a disease, and I don't see in these last few years uh, moving towards a cure or a therapy. We are just keeping that disease under control. But that uh, is not a healthy situation for this church. You've described this as an ongoing fight for the very soul of Catholicism. It's waged by the traditionalists who never accepted the outcomes and recommendations of Vatican II. And the millions and millions of us who were elated, whether Christian or non-Christian, over the election of Pope Francis and the way that he presented himself and the way that he spoke of a welcoming, uh, in inclusive church. But what can the people actually do who support Francis' vision? I, I think people sit in the pews just stifled, listening to Father on Sunday, attending church, doing what they can, but is there some practical suggestion that you can make? What can we do to give Francis the support that he's not getting from many of his cardinals? Well, I, I think one easy thing is to write letters uh, to your parish priest or your bishop if you think that what he's doing is misrepresenting what, what, what Francis is doing and saying uh, in the Catholic Church there is, uh, there is freedom of expression. So that is a, a healthy way to express uh, a certain sense of communion with the Pope. And so but that, aren't those letters falling on deaf ears? It feels like it to me. Well, they will fall on deaf ears if you think that they will convince 
that particular person. The point is also to show to other people in your parish, in your diocese, that they're not alone. And so these documents, these letters, this should, should, should be public. And so not just a private letter to the bishop, uh, but also, I mean, public letters in newspapers, magazines, um, and so on. If the mass become, if this mass of letters or petitions becomes too big, it cannot be ignored. So that's, that's one way of doing that. Um, and I believe that in the end, that they, it will convince those who think that Francis is just an incident in the, in, uh, in the church history that they expected to be something different. That's, that's one way. And I think many of us are hoping that with the vast number of cardinals he's uh, appointed, that when his time is done, that there are enough progressive, open-minded cardinals that uh, all the, his work will not come to an end or, or fall onto deaf ears. Massimo, it's been wonderful having you on the show. There's so many more questions I'd like to ask you. You're a wealth of information that I hope we can have you back at another time. But thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you.